House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren, and Mr. Dave North Martino is in the room. I am here, and you're using my full name. It's crazy. Yeah, I thought it'd be. I never know what to do. Well, yeah. <laughs> you're, right, you're you're waiting for that snide comment. So you can I am, kind of I am, thing. and now you don't know. It's like wow. I know, yeah. But remember, it's it's you be really nice to them, and then you get them. Yeah, I'm so waiting from behind. <laughs> how it works when I'm not when I'm not expecting it. When you're not expecting it, expect it. <laughs> expect it. That was an old term from an old show. I can't remember it anymore. Yeah, yeah. Things are becoming distant in the mind. <laughs> Every day. <laughs> Every day. Well, here we go. So now we've got an author. I'd like to say true crime, but I'd also like to say uh, mystery. Uh, we just got to kind of, we've got an author. Let's just say that. Um, he's got a new book out. It's called Below the Line, and it's a Hollywood crime novel. It's Mr. Lowell Caulfield. Thank you for being here. Hey, it's great to be here, and thanks for having me, both of you guys, Alan and David. Well, so, Lowell, what happened to you as a kid? <laughs> uh, I mean, I say this because now you've written uh, quite a few books, but it seems like to be on the darker side, like your House of Secrets and, and things like that are all a little bit darker, I would think. Why go there? Like, what, what is it about that that made you decide to sit down and write those kind of stories? Well, well, they're real dark, and I, but it kind of actually began in my childhood. It's funny you mentioned that. I was a big fan of shock theater and, and those old Universal movies, Frankenstein and Dracula, all the great black and white classics. So I always had an interest in things that scared people, but as I got older and I became a, a newspaper reporter and um, I found myself covering a lot of homicides. I, I was worked for the Detroit News, uh, and Detroit is like a crime theme park. <laughs> you know, I may describe Detroit as like New York with a lot more guns. Yeah. You know, it's a very in-your-face kind of place. And um, yeah, my friends in Canada in in Windsor, my friends in Windsor say you can hear the gunfire from Detroit across the the bridge. Oh yeah, Windsor. <laughs> yeah, Windsor, Windsor. Been to Windsor many times. Uh, I think it was though that uh, my buddy uh, Robert McKee, the screenwriter guru, who said that uh, to really understand the 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 you know the positive side of humanity, you have to really mind the dark side. And so I really got into mining the dark side. And I think where it started with the true crime books for me is, uh, you know, I became a very hard drinking, uh, half a gallon of whiskey a day, uh, uh reporter in, in Detroit and never lost a job, but I, you know, full blown alcoholic. And then when I got into recovery, uh, I kind of developed a fascination with why people get obsessed with things, why maybe I got obsessed with things, you know, why was I a drinker and all that. And in part of my recovery, I started doing the true crime books to kind of mine uh, that dark side. And uh, so that's how it all got started. And so I did, uh, what, four or five nonfiction crime books. And then the last one I did, House of Secrets, was uh, kind of finished me off. And uh, so I moved over to fiction and then eventually came out here to L.A. and uh, to do uh, 
Film and television. So that's her, the, the, the quick bio. Yeah, Dave, Dave does a half gallon of whiskey right now. He's in that place. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've got a seat, we've got a seat saved for you, okay? <laughs> in the meetings, yeah. you know? We'll, we'll, we'll put your, I'll put your name on one of the seats. We'll yeah. yeah, he's, 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 he calls himself a whiskey connoisseur. Yes. Uh, uh, aficionado. Yeah. yeah, aficionado. Okay, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you call it that. I. <laughs> Yeah, I had a wine cellar too. You know, I had a wine cellar, and then we got into a lot of another substance one weekend, and the, the wine cellar all got drank up in three days. Wow. So you know, <laughs> wow, there we go. Well, you it's know, called alcoholism. Yeah. <laughs> you know that. It, so House of Secrets was pretty deep, and and I know that when I've written certain crime books, especially one uh, for me, it was Murder Time Six in my path. And that, yeah, I understand what you mean by you're finished with it. It's just too, too much. And, and that kind of happened with me. So now I'm kind of doing other things, um, taking a break, so to speak, from I, I filled out my contracts and finished them off, got that all done. Now I'm free, so to speak. So I think I'll be doing fiction as well. So I know what you mean because I've been there. Uh, you know, I didn't have a wine cellar, but I, um, and I know what you mean by the dark side. So how do you how do you handle something like that? Or what is it for you that um, was the most troublesome? Well, actually, I did pretty well with the first uh, the first three or four of them. But it was that last one, House of Secrets, which I thought was going to be an easy book. And it turned out to be a three year job. And, you know, that particular story, there was a patriarch down in Akron, uh, Ohio, he had 13 kids, and he was creating a super race by having kids with his daughters, and they went on a cross-country crime spree, and he ordered his kids to kill people, and it it just, you know, I, I just kind of lost all, and, and I was sober. I mean, I, all my books I did sober. Uh, I dreamt about doing a lot of books drunk and never got one written, but when I got sober, I denied. But that particular story I just lost all faith in humanity. The, the the world looked like such a dark place after talking to all those kids and, and seeing what had happened in that particular story. Uh, and I became clinically depressed. I mean, I, I had to seek help. And, and I called them. The funny thing was, is I told the uh, publisher, I said, I tried to get out of the deal, even after two years of research. Said I don't want to do this book. It's too it's too messed up. It's too dark. It's too crazy. Nobody's going to buy it. And they were, they said, well, you got to do it. And so I tried to write it, and I only got twenty nine pages out in two months, which is, I mean, I'm a six to eight pages a day guy. And that's why I went and saw a, a physician, and he said, well, you got dysemia. It's a form of depression, and he put me on an antidepressant. And then I wrote the book in two months. I I mean, I just. I felt like I was climbing out of hell. I had to finish the book and get it to the publishers. So I sent it to the publishers, and back then we used to FedEx, you know, the manuscript. FedEx yeah. the manuscript. <laughs> we were, yeah, you remember that? <laughs> we were just talking about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and I that. called up my editor, Paul Dennis, at uh, Kensington. I said, I don't want to hear about this book. I don't want to see the cover. I don't, you know, I, I'm done with it. I'm done. I'm done with true crime. And the funny thing happened was like a year and a half later, Google had just like gotten really popular and I Googled my own name and I saw Lowell Caulfield in New York Times. I went like, wow, I haven't been in the Times in a while. I wonder what this is about. And I went there and I was on the, on their paperback bestseller list. Once I'd gone to paperback, I called up the publisher, called up Paul and I said, Paul, 
I'm on the New York Times bestseller list. How come you didn't call me? And he said, you said you didn't want to hear anything. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, yeah, that, that kind of finished me off. And, and uh, I can't be in that kind of negative. I decided to go with start writing novels because I could, I could affect the ending. And there could be redeeming qualities. In House of Secrets, there was nothing redeeming about the book. And but people bought it like crazy. I think it went it's a twenty second printing. I mean it's it's crazy how well it's sold. Yeah. Are you are you surprised with how popular, I guess would be a good word, and how fascinated society is, especially American society with true crime and murder and and all this gore and stuff, like they eat up all these books, they watch all these shows twenty four seven, you know, like Nancy Grace is a poster child now, you know. Are you are you surprised with how how much people are drawn to this kind of dark stuff? I'm surprised it's kept going. I mean, when I was doing it, uh, I was publishing in hardcover, and my books are really in-depth. I mean, I'd maybe cover the trial, but that's just the beginning. That's just like a Rolodex of who I need to talk to, and I find bigger themes about America and all these other things, and that's how you got up into hardcover. Uh, and then they stopped doing hardcovers and started doing a lot of paperback originals, and it kind of went the way of the Western. I thought, well, and then O.J. was kind of like the back last big story. And I thought, well, it's over with, and, you know, I'm going to move on too. But now I'm surprised at how it's just, it's ubiquitous in streaming and documentaries and and, and all this and I think that the reason that I believe the reason people read true crime is they're really examining themselves. They want to know the difference between themselves and these people that do these things. I mean, we all have the ability of anger, even rage, uh, duplicity. You know, we, we work as human beings on keeping that stuff in check. And I think that the reason people are fascinated with these stories is they want to see where the wheels came off. And, and in doing that, they can also pat themselves on the back, think, well, yeah, you know, maybe I cheated on my wife, but I didn't go kill her. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a self-affirming kind of uh, thing to watch this stuff yeah yeah it's kind of it's fascinating to me and how popular it really is and and uh it's just you know it's everything's it's, it's inundated with all this stuff you know negative stuff so um so how did you build back into uh getting to this new book so you've got a new book out now this is uh not true crime um but i can tell by the sound of the book there's a lot of elements in it that are true um, for you and for, for part of your life, you know, bringing Detroit into it and stuff. Um, how, did, how did this start for you, this book? Well, this is actually my first book in more than 20 years because uh, I did a couple of novels back when I was living in Michigan uh, in the suburbs of Detroit after I'd moved out of the city. And um, I, I did a book called um, uh, Marker, and uh, Elmore Leonard was a good friend of mine. I was kind of influenced by him, his approach to doing fiction. He 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 made crime fiction entertaining, and I like the idea of of taking a crime story and making it entertaining. And the way it gets entertaining is you have characters that, uh, uh, particularly criminals who are kind of legends in their own mind. And uh, I mean, you, a great example of that is Get Shorty. You even see it in the film, you know. Uh, so, uh, so I got a, I got 
I gravitated towards, towards that kind of style. But my daughter came out here. Uh, she was a graduate of the University of Michigan, musical theater graduate. She, she started doing film, and she did, you know, some really big movies too, like Legally Blonde and Road Trip, and she was on the Carey Show. And I was surfing the Great Lakes. Uh, yes, you can surf the Great Lakes. And so I, uh, I, I came out here to. Uh, I, I got an offer to adapt my first book. Uh, my first nonfiction book, Masquerade to Film. I thought, well, if I'm going to do that, I, I really ought to go to L.A. and maybe make some contacts. One thing led to another, and a particular agency found me and said, boy, you'd be a great show creator, you know, creator of TV series. So I spent the next 20 years in that business. I sold a half a dozen pilots, HBO, CBS. They didn't get picked up, but I made made a decent living doing that. I also developed a film uh, uh, called uh, Stockholm, starring Ethan Hawke. came out a couple of years ago. Uh, it's about the Stockholm Syndrome, but it's it, it's it's based on the bank robbery in 1972 in, in Stockholm, Sweden, uh, that created the term. So anyway, I had all these experiences in in the west side of L.A. And, and, and Hollywood. And particularly when I first came here, coming from Detroit, I mean, Detroit is a, it's an in-your-face kind of place. You have a dispute with somebody, uh, you know, you can yell at them, and they'll yell back, and, man, well, go have a nice day and whatever. Here you do that, and the people call the police <laughs> on you. I mean, it's, it's, it's a passive-aggressive culture here, at least on the west side, a very passive-aggressive uh and uh, the business is so much that way. Uh, uh, people get offended really easy. You kind of tiptoe around. You're walking on eggshells a lot. Uh, there's a lot of strange things that go on, you know. I remember I scared one of my first producers at uh, Spelling Entertainment. They bought my shows. And, <laughs> and one of the executives called up. <laughs> my agent said, Lowell scares us. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Because I'm really direct. You know, I came out of the news business, you know, the Detroit news business. And so anyway, I had all these experiences over the period of 20 years in the business. And I thought, and then COVID hit. And, you know, we're all locked down. And I thought, you know, I'm going to take these experiences I've had and, and, you know, alter them, of course, you know, to protect the guilty and, um, create these characters and kind of expose what Hollywood and West Side of L.A. is like within the context of a crime novel. And so in Below the Line, I pick a Detroit homicide cop, and I, I knew all those guys. I did a lot of work with Detroit homicide when I was there. He gets a uh, number of different circumstances. He ends up becoming retiring and coming out to L.A. to become a consultant on TV and uh, TV shows and films. And a lot of that goes on. A lot of the consultants that work in these crime series and stuff, these broadcast series, they're, you know, they're former cops. And then, uh, you know, he has a good run for a couple of years, and then he uh, turns 50. And uh, <laughs> one of the things you got to fight as you get older out here is there there is really kind of a prejudice against, you know, older white men. The, the Writers Guild of America, in fact, sued uh, on age discrimination and, and uh won a huge class action lawsuit out of it. And so his career starts going down and uh, a former producer he worked with, you know, calls him up. He's got a job for him and he wants him to find somebody, a, a missing woman and her kid 
for a friend of a friend, but in classic Hollywood style, he doesn't get paid. He'll get paid sometime in the future with a job. And that's a classic yeah. Hollywood hustle. <laughs> Everybody wants you to work for nothing. Anyway, so I mean, I'm starting to delineate the plot here a little bit. But the, the point is, the way I got into it is I wanted to take those experiences and those kind of people and the, and the kind of dialogue that goes on and the absurdities. Here's something kind of interesting. When I, I, because my second agent was able to sell the book. My first agent didn't quite get the book. He, he said, you know, it, this doesn't, you know, these Hollywood people that you've got in this book, they're not making any sense. They're doing irrational, <laughs> illogical things. And, and you've got, you've got to rewrite that. And I said, no, no, that's the whole point. That's, you know, he never got yeah. it, you know? Yeah. But my editor at uh, at uh, Arcade really got it. She she loved it. She loved it. she loved the humor of it. So th there's a lot of kind of humor in this uh, in this book. Is but it's a it's a serious crime book too. I mean, it's a serious. Uh, I wouldn't call it a mystery. I would call it a crime novel. You know, uh, in, in the same way Elmer Leonard, you wouldn't call his stuff mysteries. You know, they're kind of character studies with. Uh, uh, Sometimes you know exactly who did it, but the question becomes, are they going to get away with it? You know, that kind of thing. Well, I'm, I'm curious. You know, I've heard that it uh, can be very stressful writing for TV and for Hollywood. Was that your experience? <laughs> yeah, because, uh, I mean, you know, especially for someone who, uh, coming from the book world, uh, you know, I had, uh, my book editors would make a couple of suggestions here and there on my books, right, and say, uh, but it's your book, you know, your name's on it, do what you want. You come out here and you're taking notes. You're taking notes from the time you sell it. I mean, and you're taking notes from people who are totally unqualified uh, to give notes. I mean, you've got a 19-year-old, uh, somebody who who is an assistant for the one of the executives who whose job is essentially to keep a call sheet and she's saying things like well why is he driving a firebird he's in detroit and he's driving a firebird why can't he drive a bmw like tom cruise in the firm and you have to and you and you and you have to like respond in a really political way right. the key is is the politics of it i mean you want to say you, you dumbass, it's because it's Detroit. They don't have BMWs. You know, they, they had a sign in the parking lot. They had a sign in the parking lot of the United Auto Workers that says, if you are driving a Japanese car, park it in Tokyo. I mean, that sign is still, I think it's still up there. So, you know, you, so you have to deal with that. That's the stress. And it took me a while to get to, to be able to go, oh, that's an, you know, <laughs> to come back with us something like, interesting note. Let me look into that. Yeah, you know, yeah. and then do nothing. <laughs> yeah. so, well, so that's what's stressful. You're doing better than me. You know, I keep getting into trouble. So uh, <laughs> because I, I don't respond well. Oh, I got well, into trouble you know? too. I don't. I don't respond well. I, I end up if they catch me at the wrong day in the wrong time. All of a sudden, I just sort of shoot out, and it's like, oh, everyone's shocked, <laughs> and I'm getting the emails. You got to make sure your blood sugar is together. Okay, when you go in there and you meditate a little bit before you go into the meeting. I mean, I, I had a meeting with uh, uh, Phoenix Pictures and Mike Metavoy and you know, a whole bunch of people there. And there was a director there. And they just worked me over, man, for like seven hours. They brought out lunch. And, you know, they had lunch. All in. And afterwards, the director came and he says, I don't know. How did you do that? How did you take that? I, I would have gotten a gun and started shooting everybody. <laughs> That's what the director said. 
But they beat up the writers, you know. The the writer is the uh, you know if, if if there's if if a, if a film gets great reviews, it's the direction, you know. And if it gets if it gets bad, it's like the writer, the, you know, the script is bad, not the director, the script, that kind of stuff. For me, that's the hardest part. I've done some book movie deals, and for me, the hardest part is like how you said you have a lot of there's a, a lot of young people that have just no life experience um, throwing things out at, and you just kind of roll your eyes going, what are you talking about? No, there's a line, there's a line in, there's a line in below the line where Edwin Blake, the former homicide detective who's now a script consultant, he, he's talking about taking meetings and he says he found himself after turning 50, taking meetings with either young women or gay men who looked at him as though he was a father with and all the baggage that went with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's it's a, it's a whole different experience, but you know, I guess that's what can you do. But then there's a David Chase. You know, I mean David Chase was in his like his 60s I think when he did the Sopranos. And uh you know, I mean there's some people who get it. I did get to work with uh, some some cool people. Um, I got to work with Michael Douglas who one of my favorite people. We never sold the show, but I just had so much fun. He was at every pitch. He got it all. He was, you know, he's a great artist. He was very supportive. Uh, you know, I had good experiences too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean, I, I got to do things that I never thought I'd ever be able to do. And some of the people, David Schwimmer, I worked with him. He was great. God, I think there's more than two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's. Uh, so how did you how did you come up with character Edwin Blake? Is that a lot of you, or is that the combination of those people you had experience with in Detroit and homicide, or is it just kind of where does that all come from? Because I because when you're writing nonfiction and true stories, it's different than creating a character rather than you know because when you're writing true stories, you have the character, you know who they are, you got to find out stuff, and they are who they are. With Edwin Blake, you can tweak them however you want them so how how is that process for you well yeah correct i mean i knew all the the procedural moves that, that edwin blake would make because of all the time i spent doing a true crime and seeing how cops work and my relationships with some of the detroit homicide cops that i knew who have uh you know now uh since retired i mean one 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 that i knew well was um from beverly hills cop uh he played Eddie Murphy's boss in Beverly Hills Cop, uh, Gil Hill. He actually had a short Hollywood uh, career. So I, so I knew how they, you know, I knew how they acted and what they did procedurally. But what I took from myself was the idea of going from a city where the ruts in the snow are six inches deep and they're like, tracks as you're trying to get to your house because there's no money to plow the streets yeah. <laughs> right to getting on an airplane and arriving in lax and somebody's got your name with a on a sign and they've got a town car waiting for you and you're hearing smooth jazz you know on the way in coming from that detroit thing and then you're at warner brothers and you're seeing this the lot and you're seeing like oh casablanca was shot at stage 10 or whatever it was and you're seeing your favorite movies and and you know and you come in your first day 
uh, you, you get hired and you're making 3500 a week, 4000 a week, which is more yeah. <laughs> than you've ever seen in your life. And you come into your first meeting and you go to the receptionist and of course you're wearing a, a you know a coat and tie you know because this is your formal you know in detroit that's the way it is and they think you're an attorney yeah. <laughs> and, and you know they don't think you're a writer writers wear jeans and a shirt never tucked in you know uh there, there's certain dress codes so i mean there's just all these great little details that i experienced and so i took all a lot of those experiences and also that mindset i mean I'll never forget, I, I went down to the coroner's office, the medical examiner for Los Angeles County, right? And I'm, I go into the lobby because I wanted to get a copy of an autopsy uh, because I knew an autopsy in L.A. was going to be maybe a little different than one in Detroit. And I had a scene that, that required an autopsy report. And so I'd set it up with a PR guy to go there and, and, and pick one up. But while I'm waiting, I'm in this, like, lobby area, and there's people that are crying, and they're coming to get their valuables and all that. And, and I see this door, and it says, skeletons in the closet. And I said to the receptionist, I said, what's that? She said, oh, that's our gift shop. I said, gift shop? I go in there, and they're selling T-shirts and yellow crime scene tape, and there's pictures of celebrities on the wall that bought bought stuff there. And I mean, this is 15 feet away from people who've who've had their their loved ones murdered. It, it only a door separates it, and, and to, it was all perfectly normal for them. But boy, did that create a great scene for me, you know? Yeah. Because I took that Detroit mentality of of like, what the hell? You know, it's showtime. <laughs> it's always showtime here. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's just like uh, the Lakers, showtime. You know, everything's showtime. And it, it's show business. It's not show friendship. Right. That's a good thing to remember. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I tried to bring. You know, I tried to bring that sense of innocence that, uh, you know, that of someone who grew up in the Midwest. And so I put that into the character. Yeah, you know, and that's me. I, definitely, and that's you. I re, I remember my first, at the very first show I I was on that they filmed me on, and uh, the director when I showed up, she was because um, they had told me what to wear, but then when I showed up, she was like, um, thought I was uh, Canadian, so she expected me to show up in like she even said that, don't you have like some flannel and checkered shirt and jeans and all this so cause she thought you're a writer from canada i would be kind of you know outdoorsy and and rough looking i guess and it was just it she was really really put off actually they sent people out to get me a checkered shirt to wear i mean I, <laughs> yeah a maple leaf tie almost almost <laughs> it was just like wow you guys really wow that's great Thank you. <laughs> Do I get to keep the shirt? <laughs> you know, that's what I think that's the one thing that's kind of cool about Below the Line, and that's why I wanted to call it a Hollywood crime novel. Is it's even though it's crime, it it kind of puts a mirror back on the on the town here on L.A. And so, uh, I mean, people have done a lot of they set things. You know, you got Michael Connolly, and he he takes Los Angeles very seriously. You know, with his his great books. I mean, the, the Bosch thing, you know, there's stem winders, but I wanted, I wanted to look at it kind of like Elmore Leonard did in Get Shorty, 
So they kind of give it just a little give it that get a bit of fun. Even when we designed the cover, we wanted to make the cover kind of fun. You know, let people know that this isn't going to be all Budmer. Now that that said, there's some really serious stuff that happens in this book. Some really serious stuff. I mean, you know, there's homicides. There's there's a lot of big surprises in the book, and uh, because there's a lot of hidden agendas, and that's so true here too. You know, the hidden agendas. Did you did you have a, a subtext then? Did you have a theme that or something that you wanted people to get out of it? Other than the entertainment of the story, yeah, I think that comes through with the uh, with with uh, Edwin Blake's story spine. I mean, his in, the inciting incident of of the story is he gets offered to get a you know a, a writing gig above the line if he can go find this woman and her daughter, and and that's a job that's going to be in the future. The producer promises him that in the future. In fact, he's when he says to him, he says, well, you know, typically that's kind of like a private investigator kind of thing, and that's typically, I'd say, about $700 a day. And the producer says, studio hasn't given me any money, Edwin. <laughs> I don't have any money. The studio hasn't given me any money. Even though the guy's, like, driving, you know, uh, a Ferrari and all that, he's not going to spend his own money. So the, his inside the incident, he gets this job, and he thinks that this job is going to get him back into the game into the Hollywood game because he's he's bitten on it after a couple of years of doing it. He's had so much. It's been very satisfying, and he doesn't want to go back to Detroit. He's got a girlfriend here, Carla, who's a former roller derby queen. And uh, so he, he that's his story spine, to, to try to, to – he, he wants to get that job. And I think that the theme that comes true is that his ambition is is going to be his his greatest force of antagonism. He's going to have to overcome his ambition, and 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 do the right thing in order to prevail. So it, it, it's if there's a theme, it's uh, it, that's the theme that you know we can get so caught up in things that uh, we create all kinds of problems for us pursuing something that really isn't that important. He finds out what's important in the end. Are you, do you are you conscious of how you write sex and violence on the page, especially coming from true crime? Uh, yeah, I you know uh, gunfights and, uh, and and violence is is difficult to write in fiction. It really is. It's not. Uh, it's it's a lot easier in true crime because you can say you, you got autopsy reports and things like that. And uh, but in a novel, you're right there. You're 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 in the scene. And uh, you don't want to go too far. I mean, I like to kind of leave people leaning. You know, it's like Hitchcock said uh, that you want to leave people leaning. And what they meant by that is like they're taking a guy out of a car. Some thugs are going to take a guy out of the car and they're going to throw him off the cliff. The bad way to do it is they drag him to the cliff, they throw him off, and the camera sees him fall onto the rocks below. Uh, Hitchcock said the better way to do it is you see him struggling, you see his feet against the you know stones. He's they're pulling him over there, and they toss him over the end, and you don't show the landing. And he says the whole audience comes out of their seats trying to look over the edge, and so that's kind of how I handle the violence. I take you right to the edge, and uh, I think that's more effective than getting really graphic. Same with sex, same thing. Sex and death. That's what. That's you know. We're in the sex and death business, <laughs> storytelling, aren't we? <laughs> but those are the two tough things to write. Yeah, in fiction, absolutely. So I'm very conscious of it. Also, uh, love is another tough one. 
you know, when somebody loves somebody. I mean, I rewrote a, a Bruce, there was a Bruce Willis movie called Fire with Fire, and I got called down there to rewrite uh, uh, Bruce's dialogue as a, as a script doctor. And uh, there were other parts that needed to be rewritten because, you know, uh, the I love you was in that in that screenplay like six or seven times, five times. And I told the producer, I says, you get to say it once, you know. You say it once, it's effective, you know, at a key moment. Same kind of thing. you got to be real careful with that. It gets, it can get syrupy or graphic. Absolutely. You know, you want to just, you want to kind of dance around it a little bit. Like, you know what? I, I mean, a novel, you're telling a giant lie, okay? <laughs> a novel is a, is a, is an immense giant lie, but how does it, how does it, why does it work? Because all the details are very truthful. I, I'm shocked when I see a TV show. Like I, I saw a TV show where it was set in Detroit. I don't want to name it. Uh, and you got a homicide detective threatening a suspect with the death penalty. Michigan outlawed the death penalty, <laughs> penalty in 1886. It was the first English-speaking government in the world to outlaw the death penalty. There hasn't been a death, you know, there's no death penalty there. So, you know, it's the little details. It's those little things that you've got to get right to tell the big lie of the novel. But what you also, what I find you also have to do is you got to give the, the reader room to visualize and imagine. And, uh, if, if you, if you're, if you're too detailed, too graphic, you're taking that away from the reader. Fiction is a, it's a mutual experience. Not, not only the writer, but the, the reader. I learned from Elmore, never never really describe your people. I mean, you can give them some description, but let people kind of imagine what they look like. Fill it in. And, and also, another great Elmore Leonard uh, principle is never never start a book with weather. <laughs> never start a book with weather. He says, if a book starts with weather, I don't read it. Because it's a cliche. It's a dark and stormy night. You know, it's just a variation of that. Well, you, uh, he was a big influence on me. You mentioned dialogue. And, you know, I'm, I'm always curious, because um, not everybody, they, they say like 50% of, up to 50% of people don't have an inner monologue in their heads. They, they, they can't hear their thoughts. So I always get interested in how you create dialogue. Can you hear your characters? Um, can you hear your prose? Is that how you, um, is that how you create, or do you do it some other way? Uh, well, you know, there's two things. There's point of view. I I never have more than three point of view characters in a novel because it, it just gets to be too much. But, you know, how they're thinking, there's an internal dialogue. Uh, but it, when it comes to actual dialogue, I write the dialogue, and then I try to cut out as much as possible of the dialogue without losing what's being said. And also, what's underneath the dialogue? What's the subtext? What are they really saying? You know, what what emotion are they and I learned that in screenwriting. Actually, that's one of the things in screenwriting that really transferred well back into novel writing for me. And it was very difficult to transfer back to novel writing from screenwriting. Where I had difficulty was getting into the internal dialogue because after doing all the, the TV show work and the screenplay work, you, you, you can, you, you've got to show what somebody's feeling. You you don't get to go into their head. You, you can't put a camera in between their ears, right? <laughs> and uh, so that was that that was kind of difficult for me to get back into that that novel point of view. And what and once I got it, but it's a point of view again. It's minimalist. Like I'll have 
You can find it if, if you write like four sentences, five sentences of dialogue. If you go back and cut out everything that you could possibly cut out, it becomes much more punchy and much, much better. I mean, the great dialogue writers, uh, you know, it all begins with Hemingway, you know, very minimalist. You know, there's no big, long speeches uh, in modern fiction, in most of it, at least, hopefully. <laughs> That's great advice. So, so what makes a good book for you? What is it that, that uh, keeps you reading? You know, I, I don't read many books. Uh, people think that authors read a lot of books, I get, and some do. But I don't uh, because I, re- I read a lot of nonfiction. I read a lot of research books. You know, like stories about cops, you know, stuff like that, things to pick up material. Uh, but to actually read a book or I'll write, I'll, I'll read, uh, like C.S. Lewis, you know, about morality and, and things like that. And, and people say, well, why aren't you reading a lot of other novels? I, it's for the same reason that a painter doesn't have the best painted house on a block. Because when you paint all day, the last thing you want to do is come home <laughs> and paint. And when when I'm writing a book, uh, I'm in words, you know, for anywhere from four to seven hours in that process. The last thing I want to do is look at more words when I get, you know, I want to watch something stupid <laughs> or something good on television. I want to be more passive. But what makes a good book for me, the books that I do like, oh, how do you explain that? You know, I mean, it, and there are things like, you know, like Silence of the Lambs. I mean, that, was, right. that one I could not stop reading. Uh, Red Dragon. I could, Thomas Harris, man, he's my hero. He wrote three books, and he's probably worth millions. And he was done. <laughs> well, four books. I think he did four. He did uh, Black Sunday, I think was his first. It, it's got to it's gotta move. I like. I don't like long chapters. I like short chapters. I like to be kind of hooked, you know, from chapter to chapter. Give me a reason to keep reading. Leave me leaning all the time. Uh, I, I I like that kind of thing. Uh, that, that's about the best yeah. I can explain that. <laughs> Older classics. <too. laughs> I, I'm not a book no, critic. No, I, I, I sort yeah. of understand. I uh, Well, now I'm to the age where I'm listening to a lot of books because hurts the eyes. But uh, I'm more into li- listening to older classics myself. I'm trying to catch up in areas that I never had as a kid. But I, I know what you're saying. And, and but But I don't know how you can come home and watch something stupid. There's there's nothing stupid on TV. It's all good. <laughs> yeah, there is a lot. You know, I I, I binge a lot. You know, I did, I recently and I I watched The Sopranos twenty years ago. Right. It's been twenty years. Hard to believe. Yeah. I started with the pilot, and you know, the inciting incident is the ducks fly away, and you know he's going to lose his family. Uh, that's what he's worried about. That's what the whole series is about keeping his family together, keeping the mafia family together and the personal family. And you can, and I sat there and I just binged it. I mean, six seasons, it took me about a week. And it really was great because there was, we didn't have to wait a week. Remember how we had to wait a week for the next episode? (laughs) And so when you, when you, when you binge it, you see the writing and you see it and the ending makes all the sense in the world then. Uh, In the end, he's got his family together. In that, uh, and then he gets, you know, he gets killed. It's it's very clear that he they foreshadow it several times, and Chase finally admitted it. I think that that Tony dies in the end. It's where the screen goes to black. That's a great way to watch this, rather than waiting from week to week. And uh, I'm watching uh, uh, what is it? Uh, the soccer, the football coach. He becomes a soccer coach. It's huge. Oh, Ted Lasso. It's huge. Yeah, Ted. I'm watching Ted Lasso, yeah. the new season, 
And I got that, and I went to the first five, and I went to do six. And it says coming next Wednesday, and I thought, no, <laughs> I gotta wait. Yeah, I see some of them are starting to do that, and some of them are doing it every week, which kind of drives me nuts. I can't do it because then you forget and you watch other things. And, mm. and uh, personally, remember the old days where you'd uh, Friday at nine p.m. be home because the the premiere of this is coming out. I mean, those, those days don't work anymore. Not for me. You know, one of the hazards of being a writer, whether you're a screenwriter or a novelist, is it's very difficult to to totally absorb yourself in anything that you're going to see. Um, my girlfriends don't won't go to. Uh, I, sounds like I got a bunch. Yeah. Of, <laughs> no, Charlie's the angels. Girlfriends I've, this is Lois' angels. Yeah, so. No, the girlfriends I've had in the past, they don't want to go to movies with me because. You know, we'll, I'll be doing things like, oh, there's the mid, there's the mid movie climax. Oh, we're turning it, we're turning from two to three. This is not going to end well. You know, I could predict everything that's going to happen. And, uh, it, it's difficult to not always be seeing the work. And when I see a great actor or a great writer where I don't see the work and I'm just completely absorbed in it, that's the kind of stuff I like. You know, whether it's a book or a film or a series where I, and I found that with The Sopranos, too. I, I just, after a while, I just surrendered to it, quit trying to analyze it. Yeah, yeah. And it still holds up. It still holds up today. It's, it's as good as it ever is. It was. Yeah. Yeah, I was one of those guys that used to buy the DVD collections back then, and now I have a whole rack of them but never watch them anymore. I just saw streaming. <laughs> World's changing. Yeah, in in below in the below the line, I deal some with some of those changes too. I mean, there's there's a scene where the producer Jason Perry says, "Got this original idea, and it's it's great. You'd be good on it." And it's it's about a <laughs> he says it's about a, a a convict who hooks up with a detective, and they're always beating the hell out of each other through the whole thing. But they're solving cases, and Edwin. Blake says, well, it sounds like 48 hours. He goes, it is 48 hours. He <laughs> says, we're doing it for streaming like it's original. Yeah. You know, that's original because he, he's going to do it differently. <laughs> but that's the kind of humor you're going to find in that book. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess it's got to be tough in the sense of uh, there's so much streaming now. There's so much need for product of, of shows and, and, and things that there's got to be a certain formula that writers use when they have to produce so much stuff so quickly and for so many channels like it's hard to it, it's it's it, i guess it would be it's a lot harder to get truly original pieces i think in that cir circumstance yeah well and they and they have you know writers rooms and you got like five or six other brains working trying to break a story but then you look at like the vikings the vikings series right. When that Viking series came out on the History Channel, I thought it was like some schlocky thing or whatever. I didn't even watch it. And then when it streamed, I thought, oh, my God, this is so good. And every episode is written by the, by the creator. He wrote every single episode. Uh, David Milch did that, too, with NYPD Blue. He wrote every episode. He had a room full of writers, but they would just... They would just sit around, and he would lay on the floor and, like, pontificate and then leave and then write the episode. So there are these writers that can just, like, bang this stuff out. I'm not one of those, but it's, it's impressive. I mean, the, the Vikings series, I mean, how many seasons does that go? Four or five yeah, seasons, yeah, and all written by the same guy. Yeah, but it, it, it's worth it for the end product. It comes out really well. 
Yeah. So yeah. listen, I, I one thing now. How do people? Do you like to interact with readers? Are you big on social media, website, all that sort of thing? Or no, I do. I've got a new. Uh, I, I put up a new website, LowellCaulfield.com, and uh, I'm going to be adding stuff to that. It, 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 we just got it up. Uh, it's got a few things on it. I've also got a YouTube channel called Lowell Caulfield's uh, Primary Sources. Um, I've, I, I used to write about music, and uh, I've, I, when Jeff Beck died, I went into my archives and found I had a 1975 interview with Jeff Beck Right before he did his great album, Blow by Blow, and I tra- I, I digitally put that on YouTube with, with photographs and stuff. So I'm going to be doing a lot of that kind of stuff where I'm, I'm going to g- giving people, uh, privy to like original recordings that maybe resulted in books and things like that. That's why I call it primary sources. You get to hear an interview with a serial killer that I'm talking to rather than reading about it. Um, so there's that, uh, I, I have, I, I have like six followers on, on Twitter <laughs> because I never, I, I, I never really, it, it seemed like a cesspool to me. It seemed like there's so much ugly stuff going on in Twitter. I, I, I just didn't want to dip into it. It's kind of like a bar uh, fight. So I got, yeah. So I got like six followers there. I do have a Facebook page, uh, uh, Lowell Caulfield author, which uh, I'm going to be expanding uh, at this point. I have a personal Facebook page that's pretty restricted uh, yeah. because <laughs> for the reasons that we talked about in this interview, you know, uh, you can get canceled in this town really easy to say the wrong thing. So I, I keep that just among friends and family, and it's it's highly restricted. But I have an author's page there, and you can you can go to that old Caulfield author. See what else? I think yeah, yeah, that's what I got. No TikTok yet. So I'm I'm getting I'm getting out there in the into this into this more of the uh, the modern world. Yeah, yeah. Of kind of need education yeah, nowadays. It's kind of something that everyone's looking to. So well, I I love to hear from readers too. I mean, I love to hear from readers. Well, great. Although there's always going to be there there's always going to be that old lady though that sends that letter it's, that points out every typo in your book. Yeah. You know, I've always gotten those with every book. There's somebody that says, you realize on page 45 there's a typo and there's five <laughs> typos in this whole book. And yeah. you're thinking, like, yeah, try try writing 80,000 words mm. or editing them and see see how many typos you got. Yeah. Uh, you just, you know, I'll give you Dave's address because I send all my hate mail to him. <laughs> he does. And, and, and it works really well. It's, it's, it's like everyone loves me. Nobody hates me. They, it all goes to him. So There are yeah. people protesting outside my house right now. One thing that does kind of get to me is it, sometimes some critics kind of get to me I, 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 a little bit. Yeah. You know, Publishers Weekly, they did a review, and, and they said that I had used the Hollywood cliches of strippers. By the way, there's no strippers in the book. There's a retired porn star, okay? Strippers, drugs, and pedophilia. And I'm thinking, these are not cliches. This this is... <laughs> <laughs> this is the grist of, yeah. of of the bit of what goes on here. <laughs> I mean, no drugs. I'm, I'm I'm to avoid drugs, and you know, and my my people with drug problems are modern drug problem people with uh, you know prescription pill uh, opiate yeah. addiction. You know, high end opiate addiction, very common. Well, you can't win. You know, so, um, 
I've certainly learned that. You just kind of keep moving forward. Can't win with some of that stuff. Other than that, it was a great review, though. I mean, I got a really good review. They called it a fun, you know, fizzy good ride. And, uh, you know, uh, I take shots at Hollywood, clever shots at Hollywood. So they liked a lot of it. But I think sometimes critics got it to, to, to uh, and I remember doing this when I was doing music criticism to kind of, to make your credentials, you got to find something wrong, or otherwise you look like you're, you know, puffing somebody. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. Yeah, I know. Well, uh, we'll have everything up on the website as well, and of course, uh, your new book as well. Um, it's called Below the Line. It's a Hollywood crime novel. The guest has been the author of that book and many others. Check them out. It's uh, Lowell Caulfield. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Alan and David. My pleasure. Thanks, Lowell. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.